The FDA's approval of the first oral hormonal contraceptive pill called Enovid back in 1960 launched a revolution in women's reproductive health care. From that one initial pill sprang a plethora of oral contraceptive choices, representing estrogen and progestin combinations in both standard and ultra-low-dose options, progesterone-only pills, and cyclic or continuous-use prepackaged formulations. According to a survey that was conducted from 2017 to 2019 by the CDCP, around 65% of women aged 15 to 49 use some form of birth control, with the pill being the most common birth control method used by younger women. Around 20% of women aged 15 to 29 use oral contraceptives. And the FDA's approval of levonorgestrel-based emergency contraception back in 1998 and its subsequent approval of the selective progesterone receptor modulator in 2010 called ELLA provided another layer of contraceptive protection during times of unprotected or malprotected sexual intercourse. More recently, this revolution in the medical control over reproductive ability has resulted in the FDA's approval of the first over-the-counter, norgestrel-only contraceptive, the O-pill. This move allows the O-pill to be available in a variety of venues, from online to local pharmacies and grocery stores. This recent development in women's health care made national and international news, just as the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health also did. This is a big time for women's birth control access. However, we're going to cover in this episode that access doesn't always mean readily available. We're going to explain what that means in this episode. Plus, you may live in a state that already offers some form of over-the-counter hormonal birth control. We're going to cover that as well. So we're going to summarize some of the key concerns here about O-Pill's upcoming release in 2024. This is on the heels of a new Perspectives monograph that's coming out in the New England Journal of Medicine tomorrow on October the 12th. And as point of reference, we're taping this on October the 11th. Now, this actually was released ahead of print last week on the 7th of October. And we're going to summarize some of these key concerns and suspicions here regarding the OPIL, regarding its access, all right? So we're going to talk about this new Perspectives monograph from the New England Journal of Medicine that's officially coming out tomorrow on October the 12th, and we're going to talk about the difference between over-the-counter access and over-the-counter availability. This is no question, hands down, a great move for over-the-counter birth control, but it's not all that new. It's not all that novel, and it's already paving the way for, quote, better, end quote, birth control options like combination birth control pills. I'm going to talk about that also in this episode. All right, everybody, we've got lots to cover. So let's cover the O-pill, successes and suspicions. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. ACOG has long endorsed improved access to all forms of hormonal contraception. Its committee opinion 788 in 2019 made that abundantly clear. This call for increased accessibility of all form of hormonal birth control, including emergency birth control, is more important than ever for us here in the U.S. But unintended pregnancies isn't just a U.S. issue, it's a global matter. But unfortunately, here in the United States, we've had one of the leading rates of unintended pregnancies over other developed countries. Now, this is a big deal, not just because those who find themselves with unintended pregnancies uh, obviously have a life-altering condition here, right? I mean, it alters their life. There's this whole issue with um, the Dobbs decision, which we're not going to get into. Um, but it, it, it it's a big deal because outside of that social issue uh, is the fact that women with unintended pregnancies we've known for decades have a higher risk of morbidity and mortality. And not that's not just a mental wellness. I mean, there's true... Uh, higher rates of of obstetrical complications, including preterm labor, uh, gestational hypertension, like the body under stress uh, responds and shows itself, you know, typically through obstetrical uh, complications. So, you know, it, it's okay to ask patients when they come in as a new patient. We do, hey, what's your plan for this pregnancy? Was this planned? Was it uh, mistimed? Or what are your thoughts about this? We're not trying to be nosy or, or get in your business. We're, we're just trying to risk stratify because we know that unintended pregnancies can kind of raise your risks uh, of certain complications um, outside of the other issues that you may have, like your age, BMI, previous medical history, uh, and X, Y, and Z, all right? So just unintended pregnancies by themselves carry some increased morbidities. In 2017, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists called for increased action towards emergency contraceptive options, even recommending advanced prescriptions for emergency contraceptives as a way to bridge that gap in unintended pregnancy rates between those who either don't have regular birth control or had regular birth control and there was a forgotten pill or there was a, a malprotected uh, active intercourse, malprotected means, or ill-protected in some studies, is, hey, I had they had a condom on, but it broke or it slipped or whatever, all right? So this this is a ACOG-endorsed move. Hey, let's make all forms of emergency birth control more accessible, all right? So that's the idea here. And again, access is one thing, readily available is something else. And yes, we're going to get into that in just a minute. They also called for increased awareness and increased education at all points at a women's health care. So during well woman checks, during talk on vaginal discharge, when they come in even late in the third trimester as they get ready to do uh, postpartum education and postpartum planning. Uh, ACOG says, use every opportunity. That's committee opinion 707 in 2017. Use every time that you talk to a patient uh, to talk about family planning and contraception if they're open and if they're interested uh, in that avenue of therapy. 
Okay, so just a little while ago, I mentioned that the U.S. has traditionally and historically had the highest rate of unattended pregnancies in other developed countries. And that's absolutely true. But there's good news, guys. Good news. We're making some headway, all right? That that trend has been going down. Is that good or what? But let me tell you what it's down to, all right? Because it's nothing to be proud of. So when you go down from 51% uh, to 50, down to 46, that's a win. Um, we're like, woohoo, we're making headway. And that's great. The trends are going down. Is is I mean, that's good news. Nobody can deny that. So right now, the U.S. sits at 46% of all pregnancies being unintended. That's an improvement, guys. So, and that's sad. I mean, I'm not just not trying to be uh, satirical or anything. I mean, we're at 46%, and that's much better than where we were just five and six years ago. Definitely much better than where we were 10 years ago, and it's sat at close to 51%. What? I mean, this, this is mind-blowing. So, yes, historically, and I've always taught, oh, half of all pregnancies in the U.S. are unintended. I mean, it's at 46%. It's basically correct. But, but the correct answer, according to the CDC, is 46%. But again, I want to be clear and I want to take the victories, the successes uh, where they're due. And that's that we are making somewhat of a headway here because that has been going down and has been going down, uh, thankfully enough, in, in younger uh, patients, those under the age of 30. So that is definitely a win. Notice that we're using this term that everyone uses, it throws around a lot, right? Unintended pregnancies. Like it's one bag, right? Here's your bag of unintended pregnancies. Everybody's the same. But but that's not the case. So ACOG recognizes this. The Gun Mature Institute recognizes this. Uh, CDC knows that, that there's actually two different pools in that one bag of unintended pregnancy, all right? So unintended pregnancies, we're going to clarify this right off the bat, but they are grouped together, but but people fall into that by different ways, and there's two ways that they do that. One is a pregnancy that is unwanted, all right? So that's the pregnancy that occurred when no children or no more children were desired. That is the undesired, the unwanted pregnancy, okay? Now, I'm not saying that those children are undesired later on. I'm saying at the time of pregnancy, you're like, oh my gosh, wasn't planning on this now or later. That's called unwanted. But then there's the other group of pregnancies that still fall into the unintended bag that are mistimed. Those are the pregnancies that either occurred earlier than desired uh, or maybe it was, you know, like in the wrong season. Like, oh, I definitely wanted to get pregnant, but not right now when I'm about to graduate. So, again, basically mistimed. All right. So unintended pregnancies is one pie, but one half of the pie is the unwanted uh, pregnancy that is, you know, hey, this was not in my vision now or later. And then the other was, it's okay, but I wanted it later. All right, everybody good? So unwanted or mistimed are the two types of flavors that go into the one pie of unintended pregnancy. And and again, all national and, and professional societies and even international uh, reporting uses both of those groups into one catch, into one diagnosis of unintended. Well, I've heard a couple of kind of strange things, uh, both from patients and non-women's healthcare providers, right? Um, about this new upcoming OPIL because they saw something in the news or a little blurb on Facebook or whatever, Instagram, uh, TikTok, whatever the deal is, right? Oh, OPIL's coming out. And, and there's a lot of confusion out there. That's why we're doing this. But let me tell you one of the things that I've heard, which I, I just have to stop them and go, 
uh, no, homie, that is completely not right. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that a buddy told me, uh, and again, this is a healthcare provider, not a women's healthcare, very good at what they do, but that's in a whole other lane. They're like nowhere near my side of the road, right? They do something completely different. <laughs> but they say, hey, actually, what do you think about this O-pill thing? I'm like, ah, definitely a success, man. I'll take anything that we can do to bring down the unintended pregnancy rate. So having better access hopefully means the same thing as uh, as as readily available. And I went through that thing. I said, and short of it is, I think it's a plus. He said, wow, I can't believe people are going to trust a brand new pill that's just going right uh, from manufacturer right uh, to over the counter. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, I mean, this is a brand new pill, right? I mean, who knows if this thing works? Oh, my goodness. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. So that started a whole other discussion. I was like, brother, you got to sit down for a minute. Let me explain something to you. So first, and we're going to get into this in a little bit more as we go down the road. So the O-pill is, is a formulation of Norgestrel, right? This is absolutely nothing new. Now, the FDA approved Norgestrel for over-the-counter access. It's the first time that it actually stamps with the actual wording OTC, which has some other implications like insurance coverage that we'll talk about in a minute. But it, they said, hey, this is we recognize this is legit. We recognize that it works because it's been used since 1973. Uh, and so Norgestrel is okay. So go ahead and do that OTC. But it's not obviously the first available contraceptive over the counter because plan B went over the counter first with an age restriction, then obviously without an age restriction where it sits now. And there's already some states in the U.S. that already do this for other birth control pills. I was going to leave this for later on, but let's just cover this now since we just brought this up. There are already 29 states plus Washington, D.C. that already participate in some kind of over-the-counter or behind-the-counter hormonal birth control. This typically still requires some kind of health screen, either online or that you complete there in person or you talk to the pharmacist. And right now, most of those states do have that as age-restricted to 18. Now, remember, the O-pill is supposed to be without age restriction. But again, uh, increased access doesn't mean readily available. Those those are a little different terms here, all right? And now, again, yes, I'll explain that in just a second. But it just stunned me that this licensed healthcare professional is like, ah, this new pill's coming out, and they're going to put it over the counter? We don't even know if it works. Dude, it's been out since 1973, bro. 1973. Um, I'd like to say I wasn't born yet. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. If I was, I was very, very small, like not talking small, right? So just deal with that. <laughs> so the O-pill was, yes, it's been around forever. It wasn't called the O-pill, it was called something else. But this is nothing new. So let's set that straight right now. O-pill, been around for 50 years-ish, right? 30 years from the 70s to the to 2000. Now we're, right now we're 23. So yeah, I mean, dang, 50 years. But this is one of the suspicions. So, I, I, and I knew what he was getting at. Then, as this conversation evolved, he said, "Well, is is it? Wait, is it one hormone or two? See, that was a whole lack of understanding." So when I said it's a progesterone only, man, super safe. It's progesterone only, basically very little to no contraindications unless you got active breast cancer. Um, that because it's progesterone only. Then that provider then came back with, "Well, that, is that going to work?" Oh my goodness, that started another discussion. This was somebody that I just saw going down the hallway, right? I'm like, come over here. But we ended up going into, into the lounge and <laughs> chit-chatting about this thing because I couldn't help it. Um, yes, progesterone only. Does it work? Absolutely. 
But but the concern is, and one of the suspicions here is that people are going to get confused with, is this is this two product, two hormones in this pill? Is it a single? What does that even mean? Because we understand, of course, that adding estrogen to oral contraception uh, is nice for bleeding control, and it does offer more forgiveness if a pill is late or missed. Okay, so while both pills, progestin only in combination, are daily, you have a little, little bit more forgiveness with the estrogen addition because it further suppresses uh, gonadotropin release. All right, but the only hormone that's needed for birth control, obviously, is the progestin. We all get that. You all know that, right? That's why there's progestin only methods. Duh, there's no estrogen only methods. It's the progestin that has its effect. Uh, it's a good time for us to kind of sidetrack and do a basic pharmacology review on why progesterone works as emergency birth control and as standard birth control. Let's do that next. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yep, the primary hormone responsible for preventing pregnancy in any kind of contraception is progesterone because it inhibits ovulation. Progestogens provide negative feedback at the hypothalamic level. Everybody gets that the pituitary doesn't release FSH and LH, but it starts at the hypothalamus. This decreases the pulse frequency of GnRH. Although progesterone regulates GnRH secretion via hypothalamic receptors, there's actually a lack of progesterone receptors on GnRH neurons. Figure that. <laughs> This means that it likely works by interneurons expressing sex steroid receptors. All right, is that weird or what? So yes, it works on the hypothalamus, but have you ever asked, does the hypothalamus have its own antennas for it? Not really, they're kind of indirect, but progesterone actually does work on the hypothalamic level to decrease GnRH pulsitivity, which then in turn decreases FSH release. The lack of follicular recruitment leads to decreased estradiol from the ovaries. So you have this combination of less FSH because of the stimulation, negative feedback on the hypothalamus, which causes less follicles, which causes less estradiol from the ovary. And that negative estradiol, that estradiol poor environment also leads to decreased uh, push of the LH surge. All right. So the key here is progesterone working at the hypothalamus to reduce pituitary activity, which reduces estradiol activity, which reduces the likelihood of LH, which means you get very impaired or inhibited ovulation. Oh, so that's how it works, right? So it's progesterone only. 
Now, of course, I'm talking about daily use, right? Well, not, not how it works for emergency contraception, though it's very similar because progestin-based emergency contraception works to delay ovulation before the LH surge, all right? So remember that progesterone by itself is trying to prevent LH. So if LH has already happened, then plan B will not work, all right? So plan B works great. I'm all for it. But if the LH surge has already happened, you've missed the boat for that to work, Okay. Ella, on the other hand, the olipristol progesterone receptor modulator still works past the LH surge, but not up to its peak. So it works a little bit later on, just before ovulation, to prevent that, that follicle from actually rupturing, all right? So plan B is very dependent on LH surge, so it will not work post-LH increase and definitely post-LH surge. However... Olipristol will work with increasing LH levels up to the time of follicular rupture. That's why Ella Olipristol, which unfortunately still requires a, pre a prescription, actually has much better efficacy than Plan B. Right? So ACOG says hey, any form of contraception is legit. Use it. Even BMI doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter, but just use something. That's ACOG's stance. Chapa interpretation, right? But we know that, hey, weight actually affects these. Uh, plan B doesn't do so well over a certain weight limit, whereas LA is more forgiving. Plan B doesn't work so well with LH on the rise, whereas Ella is much more forgiving. So they are not the same, right? They're both emergency contraceptives, but their mechanisms of action are very different. One is a progestin-based uh, of course, levonorgestrel, and then Ella is ulipristal as a progesterone modulator, and they work, they have different effects, peri-ovulation. Neither of them work if ovulation is already set in motion, all right? So both of them take the finger off the button that gets pushed for ovulation to happen, okay? It kicks down ovulation uh, several days down the road. So that's its mechanism of action as emergency contraception. But what we covered here, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian suppressions for daily use, plus with daily use, you also get that thickened, uh, inhospitable cervical mucus. Wait, let's stop there for a minute because mucus, what a horrible word, right? Mucus, that just sounds gross, mucus. You got mucus in your, in your throat. You got mucus in your sinus cavities. I'm sorry, man, you've got mucus in your cervix. The mucus is just gross. This is a Bad, just sounds gross. Bad descriptive word. Anyway, uh, mucus provides that thickened physical barrier there at the cervix. Now, that's for a daily progestin-only pill. But remember that other kinds of progestin contraceptives, like Mirena, have a primary effect on the endometrium, right? So Mirena is endometrial decidualization. And while there is some ovarian suppression... Uh, you can still have ovulatory cycles with it because that's a secondary. Isn't that crazy? So while they're all progestin-only methods, look how they vary by, by, by contraceptive mechanism. The pill is primarily ovarian suppression. Thickened cervical mucus and decidualization of the endometrium, those are all legit, but those are secondary mechanisms, all right? Intrauterine uh, progesterone primary is actually just that. The primary is endometrial protection and cervical protection with the secondary being ovulary, uh, ovulatory uh, suppression. Crazy or what? So they're both progestin-only methods. They're both POMs, but they, their primary mechanisms vary based on how you're using it. Nexplon, of course, does both. Very good ovarian uh, suppression, uh, which is odd because even though it does suppress ovulation, 
your your estrogen levels aren't aren't completely hypoestrogenemic. I mean, it's not like you're you've got zero, which is a weird quinky dink. Got to figure that out. But it's probably because it stuns that that ovary, uh, that follicle, but still able to have some some estradiol production. Um, but nonetheless, you can still have symptomatic uh, hypoestrogenemic symptoms. But next one on the reason that its failure rate is significantly less than the progesterone IUSs and the copper T and better than sterilization. I mean, there's nothing that beats the uh, implant, eternal implant for contraception. It is the lowest failure rate uh, with some reports saying uh, 0.2, some saying Point zero two. How about that? The point is, it's very, very low because you do have a better suppression and better control of the endometrial uh, uh, layer of birth control. So while the pill is primarily ovarian suppression, with secondary being uterine and cervical mucus, intrauterine devices primarily primarily uterine with a secondary effect on the ovary. Next one on kind of takes both into effect. Man, I know I'm not focusing on implanon at all, the eternogestural implant. Our focus is on the O-pill, but I can't help myself. So let me just read you this little excerpt from 2000 in the European Journal of Contraceptive and Reproductive Healthcare in this publication, because it's really good, all right? The author is Benick, B-E-N-N-I-N-K, Benick. And again, 2000, European Journal of Contraception and Reproductive Healthcare. The title is the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of implanon, a single rod eternogestrel contraceptive implant. Yes, I'm focusing on the O pill. Just, just bear with me for a minute because it makes this point super interesting about estradiol. All right. Um, so here's what it states: "Quote, although it initially suppresses follicular development and estradiol production, ovarian activity slowly increases after six months, and follicle stimulating hormone and estradiol levels are almost normal." Is that wild or what? So yes, it seems to have some little bit of ovarian awakening after the first six months, but don't worry because listen to this. And here's here's the conundrum, right? If FSH levels go back to normal. Uh, and estradiol levels aren't that low, does that mean you're ovulating? No, it doesn't. Because it goes on to say, quote, in ovarian ultrasound studies, ovulation occurred in less than 5% of users, even up to 30 months of use. All right, so there you go. Remember, Implanon is uh, still FDA approved for three years, although it's commonly used in the U.S. and internationally for five years. Nothing wrong with that, all right? So, But by label, I have to say the FDA label is three years, although there is nothing wrong uh, off-label. You just have to tell your patients that they can use it. There's no change in efficacy up to five years, all right? So it goes on to say again, so uh, up to 30 months, less than 5% ovulated. Quote, this reflects the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of Implanon, this reflects its heightened contraceptive efficacy as it reflected a zero pregnancy rate over 5,629 women years of use. Wow. So so if you're asked, hey, does, does Implanon suppress ovulation? Absolutely. But it, it, it kind of increases FSH levels after about six months, but the FSH levels, even though they rise and the follicles can start to uh, start to generate, it stuns them, right? So it prevents truly ovulation, but it may have some follicular growth. Everybody good? So that's why estradiol levels with Nexplanon are, aren't 
all that bad. I mean, they're, they're basically normal. Now, everyone's different. Sometimes some women can respond to lowered level of estrogen and get very symptomatic vaginal dryness. Rarely, but possibly have some hot flashes. So it is possible. But in general, their estradiol levels are, aren't that bad. Okay, now let's get back on track and talk about the O-pill as we get ready to near the finish line here. Oh, thank you. In May 2023, the FDA's Non-Prescription Drug Advisory Committee, known as NDAC, N-D-A-C, and the Obstetrics, Reproductive, and Urology Drugs Advisory Committee voted unanimously, guys, that's pretty impressive, to 17 to 0 with no abstainments that the benefits of making O-pill available for over-the-counter use outweighed any risk. That's pretty impressive. The O-pill is 0.075 milligrams of norgestrel, and it's set to come out early in 2024. Now, we don't have a true release date yet, but it's been said by the manufacturer to be in Q1 or the first quarter of 2024. I do not have any financial or proprietary links to this thing, all right? But norgestrel, as we already stated, is not a new medication. It was approved as a prescription birth control back in 1973. Traditional contraindications to progestin-only pill are, are very, very limited. Remember, contraindications, basically some kind of unexplained weird vaginal bleeding, that should probably be assessed. Weird uh, liver pathology, active hepatitis, uh, liver tumors, or uh, breast cancer. Th that's basically it. So traditionally, they've been, considered, they've been considered very safe, right? Women who are breastfeeding, those in the immediate peripartum interval, uh, those with traditional contraindications to estrogen and progestin birth control, then progestin-only methods and or pills have been allowed. So as we get ready to wrap this up, what's the take-home message? The take-home message is simple. O-pill is a success story for female contraception because it's a door opener. And even though we already have those 29 states plus Washington, D.C. that have already done amazing things, wonderful things to try to increase access to prescription-free hormonal birth control, that's great. Having something that has the official stamp of over-the-counter, uh, meaning, you know, without need of prescription officially at the FDA level, is a very, very big thing because it just opens up, as we mentioned, that door opener to other possible agents. The biggest suspect that can derail it is cost. That's the big unknown. And that's why that review from the New England Journal of Medicine set to come out tomorrow, October the 12th, is a great read. Remember, that came out as an EPUB October the 7th. So you may want to check that out. Thankfully, one suspect that had the fear of derailing this seems to be addressed because the wording states from the FDA approval that the OPIL is without age restriction. So if you're thinking, well, wait a minute, if the 21 states and Washington, D.C. already have some kind of OTC access, why is this important? It's important because those were not approved for OTC access, so it still has some restriction uh, for access to care and availability. However, having that stamp of OTC opens up the avenues of not only accessibility, but hopefully availability, meaning it's cost uh, affordable. So this is a big thing. I'm happy that OPIL is out. Let's wrap this up. All right, podcast family, I am all for the OPIL. I'm all for all increased access to birth control methods and making them readily available. 
So we still have some questions coming out, but I'm looking forward to the first quarter of 2024. There is another company specifically looking to apply for a combination birth control pill OTC status. This is in development right now. Now, it's it's definitely not done. It's still going through the paperwork. But you see how it just takes one to start to break that uh, that that dam and it allows others to come through. And I think that's great. So yes, there is currently another pharmaceutical company not ca- called Cadence that's working towards the first FDA approval of an OTC version of a combination oral birth control pill. That pill is called Xena. Xena. Wasn't there a show like Xena? Was it Xena? Warrior Princess? Is that too old school? It's like during the 80s. I think that's with an X. This is Xena with a Z. Z-E-N-A. Xena. But that may be coming soon. Again, Cadence Pharmaceuticals. I have no financial ties to that. But looking at Xena as a combination that has the stamp of approval for over-the-counter use. Things are moving fast. And we'll bring that to you here at Clinical Pearls. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. So we'll see you in another episode of Clinical Pearls.